0: Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers and you can find me at live to 110.com and you can find this video podcast on the YouTube channel at Wendy Live to 110. Please go there and subscribe. Today I have a, a new format of the podcast I'm, I'm going to be doing more often, which are roundtable discussions with experts on various topics. Today we're going to be talking about Lyme disease. And all the co-infections and all of the uh, the issues around misdiagnosis and missed diagnoses of Lyme disease, and it's a huge problem. Uh, our guests today are Dr. Jess Armine and Sean Bean. They work together as a team, and they are such an amazing uh, pair of practitioners. I've been training with them over the last seven several months, and uh, consulting with them, mentoring with them, and uh, you know trying to extract everything I can from their brains. They're so, so such amazing practitioners. I've really been blown away uh, by their, their vast amount of knowledge and their huge hearts and how much they care about getting to the underlying root cause of their patients' illnesses. And Lyme disease is a huge factor for anyone that has a chronic disease or illness. And we're going to be talking about why you want to get checked uh, for Lyme if you do, in fact, have a chronic disease or illness, because Lyme disease mimics 300 different diseases and health conditions. Please keep in mind that this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition, and it's not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please contact your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment that we suggest today on the show. And so our guests today are Dr. Jess and Dr. Jess Armine and Sean Bean. Dr. Jess Armine holds a license as a doctor of chiropractic and a registered nurse and has been a healthcare provider for 37 years. He's trained in chiropractic, methylation, genetic research, neuroendoimmunology, functional medicine, nutrigenomics, which is your genes, your 23andme.com profile, applied kinesiology, cranium manipulation, and nutritional counseling. He also cracks backs. <laughs> Dr. Armin is one of the few specialists in the United States specializing in correlating genetic SNPs, which are single nucleotide polymorphisms or gene mutations like MTHFR with neuroendoimmunology, acquired mitochondrial dysfunction and cell wall integrity to identify hidden imbalances, also known as leaky cells and leaky uh, uh, histamines, things like that, he develops individualized treatment plans specific to the history and physiology of the individual patient. Hence the name of his uh, his clinic, the Center for Bio-Individualized Medicine. Um, our next roundtable guest is Sean Bean. As engaged under the direct medical supervision of the physicians he serves, Sean has provided indispensable knowledge and value that considers endocrine, neurological, psychological, and immune system disorders. Nutritional and supplemental interventions are formulated into a therapeutic protocol that complements and enhances the physician's standard conventions. Sean Bean is the co-founder for the Center for uh, Bio-Individualized Medicine and head of the Department of Clinical Nutrition. He also specializes in clinical nutrition, having several years of experience working with challenging medical cases. He possesses a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science from Westchester University and has earned numerous certifications from the World Institute of Integrative Health Science. He also has a certification in Neuroendoimmunology, NLP, which is Neurolinguistic Programming, and Clinical Hypnotherapy. Sean specializes in alternative medicine, including biochemistry and neurology of autism, depression, chronic fatigue, weight loss, nutrition, uh, gastrointestinal imbalances, environmental toxicity, hormones, genetic mutations, as well as lifestyle modifications. He also has completed all the certifications in methylation offered by Dr. Ben Lynch. And he's one of the few specialists in the United States specializing in genetic SNPs or single nucle- nucleotide polymorphisms. Wow, that was a mouthful. <laughs> Jess, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: <coughs> it's our pleasure, Wendy. So yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you again.
0: Yes, thank you so much. So we're going to be talking about Lyme disease, um, because I'm, I'm really surprised by how many people suffering from chronic fatigue and other health issues are suffering from this and are not being diagnosed by their general practitioners, even when they've gone to doctors year after year after year, and even decades, uh, they're not being properly diagnosed and treated. So um, why don't you guys first tell the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, you know how you guys got into consulting about Lyme. Sean, why don't you go first?
1: Um, Wendy, I'm a clinic. I specialize in clinical nutrition. I use metabolic pathways to help with the diseases. Um, since I'm not a doctor, I can't treat, diagnose, or prescribe anything. Um, but I can evaluate people for imbalances within their body. Um, so many people are, are treating a specific disease, being labeled. But what we need to focus on is we need to treat the person and just not the disease or the label in itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Jess, why don't you tell us a little little bit about your background?
2: Sure. I've been a healthcare provider for now thirty-nine years and I started out as an EMT um, paramedic in New York City and um I also became an RN and most of my um training there was in emergency department nursing and critical care nursing. I in the early nineteen eighties, after being in the army for three years as a captain, I went to chiropractic school, finished chiropractic school in um, 1986, and had been a chiropractor since that time. So, uh, alternative medicine has been always an interest of mine. Uh, when the when my son developed uh, schizophrenia, I started becoming uh, very interested in um, neuropsychiatric diseases and uh, neurology, and um, started learning um, neurotransmitter balancing and. Subsequently, the uh, Neuroscience Corporation came up with the certification in neuroimmunology, which I got the first certification. And uh, things just burgeoned from there. Then I met Sean, and um, you know, with his, he was yeah, absolutely brilliant. And we started putting ideas together, and I uh, started including the epigenetics into this consideration. And he and I created a um, system of thought. That we call bioindividualized medicine that puts epigenetics and neuroimmunology and mitochondrial dysfunction and cell so will integrity together, so that doctors start stop looking at diagnoses and start looking at the various parameters of the body and start fixing that. Okay, because they were concentrating either on the end result, which they're calling a diagnosis, okay, and or and then treating that, and that is like the singularly uh, unsuccessful. That's why we have so many chronic. Uh, People chronically ill. Uh, so, um, Lyme is a perfect example, you know, and it can express in a million different ways. And it's how you diagnose it, what your index of suspicion is, and do you know how? To, do you know what testing to do and how to interpret the testing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, want to tell the listeners exactly what is Lyme, uh, just for anyone who's maybe not aware of it.
2: Just yes, take that. Sure. Okay. bug burgdorferi is Lyme. Borrelia is a spirochete. Okay, uh, there are lots of Borrelias out there, okay? Borrelia buctifori is one of them. Borrelia F.C.C. if I'm pronouncing it right. And, of course, Texas had to have its own Borrelia, so it's called Borrelia Lone Star. (laughs) They even have their own tick called the Lone Star Tick. (laughs) Personally, I think everybody in Texas gathered the ticks and put a little star on the back. Yeah, I'm from Uh, Texas, so I
0: like that. Well,
2: (laughs) we all know that Texans... You know, that's the, there's a lone star state for a reason, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But never, nevertheless, uh, there are lots of permutations of this particular spirochete. Now, in understanding spirochetal illness, you go back to your basic uh, your basic healthcare training, health training in school, and think about syphilis. Syphilis is pallidum, which is a spirochete. And the same life cycle happens. Uh, you know, at, for syphilis, you get the canker sore. And then goes away by itself, and then you get the rash sometime or another, and goes away by itself. And eventually, it attacks the brain. Well, Lyme is syphilis's smarter cousin, where it's you know will attack the neural system, does a really good job of it, hides very well, can fool the immune system. Okay, and this is why we have so many people with such varied uh, symptom expressions of Lyme. And, of course, we have to talk about the co-infections. Sean, why don't you take the Um, co-infections? There's multiple
1: co-infections. There's mycoplasms. There's um, rickettsia. You've got um, Rocky Mountain spotted fevers. You've got parvoviruses. You've got EBV, Epstein-Barr virus. Um, Those are just some to name the few. Um, You've got psychomegalia in there as well. So... What a lot of the practitioners tend to do is is they tend to focus on Lyme, but they tend – in a lot of the cases we run into, um, it's not necessarily Lyme that's a problem. It's the cold infections as well. Um, the way I explain it to my clients is is when they when one comes out the party, they always bring out their friends uh, to cause havoc. Um, so – Sometimes it's the Lyme that triggers the co-infections. Sometimes it's the co-infections that trigger the Lyme. But a lot of the doctors are not even looking at the co-infections, and they are just as worse, if not as bad, as the Lyme themselves. Yeah. And.
2: Gorgeous. Okay, Lyme is a you can consider it a catch-all term for vector-borne diseases. Things that are are. Uh, given to you by a tick, okay? And uh, unfortunately, what most medical physicians do, most, will do a screening test, though it's called an ELISA test, for IgG and IgM, and they'll do it for Borrelia bug and, and if it's negative, they say you don't have Lyme. But the fact is that that test is only valid a certain amount of time after the bite to a certain amount of time. So I think it's – is it three months, Sean, to – Is it three weeks to three months or something to that effect? But there's a window where those two immunoglobulins will build up and come down. And after that, you're not going to see it, but you have it.
0: Is that also called the Western blot?
2: The Western blot is a a little more advanced test. And for those people who don't know what a Western blot looks like, think of um, those uh, pictures on CSI where they would uh, inject the electrophoretic gel and you see all those little lines go up when they're testing DNA. Okay, this uh, test will allow, uh, will is something similar where they will test for different bands and you'll see these different weighted bands and they compare it to a control and they see how many bands you can match, okay, for IgG and IgM. Uh, immunoglobulin G and immunoglobulin M. So uh, the CDC has a criteria, okay, of how many bands is considered Lyme disease. But very often the bands are not seen by the computer because the computer's logic says, well, that band that I'm looking at has to be 60% of the intensity of the control band for me to call it positive. So there's loads of people out there that have Lyme that the computer's not seeing. And when the computer doesn't see it, it reports it as negative, And regardless of your symptomatology and where even if your index of suspicion is very high, okay, the uh, medical physician will say, well, that's ruled out. Well, it's not ruled out, okay? Uh, History has a lot to do with it. If you happen to be a camper, if you're an Eagle Scout, if if you're trying to tell me you haven't been bit by a tick, I don't want to hear it. You didn't get a bullseye rash, I don't want to hear it, okay? Uh, There's too many people who've been... You know, bitten and have these vector-borne diseases, and well, it will express a thousand different ways. And by the way, if you go to look at those maps about Lyme, those are the CDC-positive cases that have been reported. You can find Lyme in Antarctica. The emperor penguins have Lyme. The ticks go over by the <laughs> seabirds. Not joking. Yeah, they have Lyme. They've been tested for it. Lyme is everywhere. So if you have any kind of chronic disease. Any kind of chronic disease that has not been positively diagnosed, and I mean the root cause of it, found and treated successfully, you must. It is imperative that you start looking for Lyme, the co-infections, and everything that is considered Lyme. Otherwise, your doctor is not doing their job.
0: Yeah, yeah, because there's so many false negatives or false, you know, false negatives. Absolutely. Can you do you have any uh, percentages on or statistics on the amount of false negatives that are produced by the typical IGG and IGM tests?
1: Just sure. through clinical, just through clinical experience and stuff, we're seeing a significant amount. Uh, just probably within the past two or three weeks, from the labs we ran, we've caught eight to ten of people eight to 10 people out of 12 people that have that should be that tested negative on quest or LabCorp, core but tested positive with the bands themselves on the on the um mdl labs
0: yeah yeah so so listeners if you have a chronic illness and you've tested negative for lyme your doctor was smart enough to at least test for it and it was negative don't rule it out um because chances are you know it's a factor in your illness um, so, so how does Lyme avoid detection in the body's immune system? Yes.
2: Well, it does it a lot of different ways. It'll hide different places. Okay. Uh, it can make the blood hypercoagulable. Okay. There aren't as many Lyme organisms running around as you might think. Okay. Which is why sometimes when you do the test um, to culture it, you may not catch it if unless it's there. Um, how else? How else, Sean? Um,
1: sometimes Lyman stuff tends to hide within the brain, so a lot of times you need to have a, actually have a doctor um, initiate a brain spec, um, and you can see it within. Sometimes you can see it within an MRI, but sometimes a brain spec is much better because it shows functionality versus where an MRI would show structure. Jess.
2: The, um, the other thing that Lyme does, and I'm not exactly sure the mechanism, it can go, quote-unquote, dormant for a while. Mm-hmm. But there's a set of testing out uh, that tests for Lyme cytokines and, Ly- and the memory cells. So when your body uh, reacts to an antigen, it's going to create memory cells so that if an antigen shows up again, it's going to produce um, antibodies. And there's tests out there that can stimulate... White blood cells with the Lyme antigen and see if there are memory cells there. Mm -hmm. And not only see if there are memory cells for the various organisms, but also, and don't ask me how they do this, they get this little tube, go down to where the cells are, suck out some fluid that tests for cytokines, which are the biomarkers of the immune system, and can actually test for the Lyme specific cytokines. So you can make a case that this person has dormant Lyme, has had Lyme, you know, or has active Lyme that's hiding. If you correlate the tests, and that's the real difficulty is correlating the tests and realizing that there are multiple things that can cause, uh, let's say, the neuropsychiatric or neurological uh, expression or whatever the uh, expression is um, that you're calling your chronic disease. Now, mind you, we're talking about a lot of different things. We're not talking about your typical joint swelling Okay, which is you know, ubiquitous with Lyme. Okay, we're talking about all manner of neuropsychiatric illness. We're talking about multiple chemical sensitivities, mast cell activation disorder, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. We're talking about all the dysautonomias. We're talking about all the autoimmune diseases because this can upregulate the immune system, then dysregulate the immune system, causing the body not to recognize self. It's the entire gamut. It's one of the root causes, that allows the body to, if you'll excuse the scientific expression, discombobulate.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's actually my next question: Is what are some of the symptoms of Lyme, so that people, the listeners, can recognize it in themselves? I mean, there. I mean, the list is a mile long. Um, but can you guys? Uh, Sean, go Sean is over? shaking
2: his head, so I'll let him talk. The yeah. so one on way please. I explain it to
1: my clients uh, doctors, patients, is that there's a couple different types of Lyme. There's a there's Lyme from neck up. There's Lyme from neck down, and there's Lyme from neck. From top to bottom, okay. Some people who may come in have ex- symptoms of just plain old fatigue, okay, and not be expressed neurologically, but they test positive because it's um, where the Lyme tends to hit. Um, one of the things I found through my years of experience with this is Lyme tends to hit the weakest chink in the armor, okay. If there's pre-existing uh, genetic expressions. It will probably go after those, which will probably be more likely to be, um, you know, if you have a psych issue, then you have more likely to have the line to be um, neuropsych. If you have joint pains in the past, it may hit the joint pains. Um, From my own experience stuff with relatives, I know that line migrates, it moves, it shifts. It can start at a general location and then migrate throughout the body. A close relative of mine was diagnosed with MS but I know when um, the diagnosis came in that it was actually uh, um, Lyme um, and was actually identified through an alternative method uh, 20 years back that was showing Lyme, and it said it was in the shoulder. Well, he had all kinds of shoulder pain, and then all of a sudden it migrated to the back of his spinal cord, and they thought it was MS. But MS's um, clinical diagnosis is two or more lesions separated by space and time. But unfortunately, the lesions didn't grow. So we began to question if it was truly MS or not. Um, so it can manifest as pretty much anything. I've had people where they come into my office, they come in there, they're have the they're bike riders, they're high endurance athletes, and they're sitting there and they have um, – they have an autonomic imbalance to where they're sitting there talking to you. Their ears are going up and down. Their eyelids are going this way, and it's a unique experience because they're carrying on a conversation when they have this total involuntary control, which is all coming from the neurological aspect from Lyme. But they don't have depression. They don't have anxiety, um, and they can fully functional hold full time job. Um, but it's really up to the practitioner to decide the symptomatics because. They cross over, okay, because a lot of times we may have a person we suspect Lyme, but we're not going to chase them down the antibiotic avenue because of the fact of, listen, we address the person, we address the Lyme, okay, or we address the immune, address the body's immune system, take care of Lyme itself, um, and normally in those situations, the person gets better with less drugs, less supplements, and they can go on their daily lives, So symptoms can permeate any way, anyhow. They can express as adrenals, hypothyroid, um, hypopituitarism, all the way to psychosis to where a case that I had was the person that was locked up in a mental institution for psychiatric schizophrenia. Um, And when they're properly evaluated, they had Lyme the whole time. Three months, this person who was Not able to function in society is now back in society functioning normally without any kind of psychiatric meds. So it's Brian Stallman. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, basically, what it is is Lyme is the great mimicker. Okay, it can mimic MS, it can mimic ALS, it can mimic all those symptoms. So it's the skill of the practitioner, the attentiveness to the practitioner to listen to the history. Okay, when you have a person saying, um, a lot of doctors don't ask, what do you do for activity? Okay. Just last week I had a guy, I said, I, he goes, yeah, I want you to ship my stuff to North. I want you to ship my testing to an alternative address. I'm going on vacation. I said, where are you going? He goes, Yellowstone National Park. I said, by <laughs> the way, what is your, what do you do for fun? He goes, I'm a mountain biker and rider. I, I ride mountain bikes. I said, well, that would definitely I, indicate uh, common sense is that have you been checked for Lyme? He goes, no, I haven't. I said, well, I think it's on the radar that we n- need to further evaluate this to rule out the possibilities because of your <clears throat> high percentage of it occurring. Or you get people that have said, um, I've got tired and, and sick. I said, where did you used to live? Um, I lived in New York for six years. Well, New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, um, Arkansas. That whole area, it's all Lyme Central. It's in the Lyme Belt. West Virginia, um, Rhode Island, Connecticut, that's all in the Lyme Belt. So you've got to look at the history and you've got to ask the questions. You've got to be a thorough investigator to ask those questions because those symptoms could be, wow, I just got over a divorce. I'm like, okay, well, we know stress triggers the Lyme. Okay? So if you may have not had Lyme before, you may have expressing now.
2: Your immune system will attempt to compensate for as much as it can. Okay, when it's got multiple infections or one massive infection and you see certain testing, you know that the immune system is overcommitted, so it can't commit as many soldiers, if you will, to each battle. For those scientifically minded amongst us, uh, Brian Fallon, M.D., uh, who's a psychiatrist at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, uh, did a ton of studies on uh, recalcitrant schizophrenia. And uh, took people who were recalcitrant to every uh, antipsychotic medication out there, tested them for Lyme, treated the Lyme, and the schizophrenia went away. Mm. Okay? There is a, there's, uh, literature out right now positively correlating ALS with Lyme. Okay? And you, somebody will say, well, Luke, you know, during Lou Gehrig's time, there probably wasn't a bunch of Lyme around. And, and they would be correct. Okay? It's a matter of how the person expresses. Uh, as you know, Sean and I are genetic experts. And what we do, we're methylation experts. God forbid I use that term any longer after last night's podcast. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But the reality is, okay, that, uh, and I've said this a thousand times, that genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. It's what makes the genetic pathways that could be dysfunctional express. And Lyme or any other microorganism, virus, bacteria, and so forth can take root and make genetic predisposition expressed, and that's the way it has to be looked at okay everybody's looking at methylation everybody's looking at nthfr they're looking at pathways but they aren't thinking about the pathways that there wasn't a problem when they were a baby okay it's a problem now why is it a problem now okay because something's you know filling up those pathways and inflammation the products the products of uh, the uh, microorganisms metabolism and so forth are are what's creating the the genetic expressions. And depending on where the glitches are, which are the genetic predispositions, that's how you're going to express. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on from there, okay? Mm -hmm. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And it becomes a big cascade event. So by the time they come see us, we're sitting here trying to sort out. And the way we do it is by taking a really good history. That's why our consultations are around two hours. Because history is everything. History, if you, I learned, and so is Sean from very old doctors, that they they always told us that if you listen to your patient, they will tell you what's wrong. But you have to have high indices of suspicion. And Lyme is a big one. Lyme and the co-infections and everything that's associated with it. Candida. Okay, a big one coming up on the outside is toxoplasmosis. Okay, the brain parasites. Okay, you have to start thinking about them. And they may not be Lyme-related, but if you have Lyme, is that going to compromise your immune system enough to allow these other guys to get in? And it's going to compromise your blood-brain barrier enough to allow viruses into the brain where it normally wouldn't be. And talking about transfer, okay, there's studies out that show that you can transfer Lyme in utero to the baby. Okay, you can transmit Lyme sexually, okay, with the exchange of fluids. Okay, that's not me making it up. That's in the literature. Okay, and you wonder how else you can so, you you know, people are passing Lyme back and forth like they're passing parasites back and forth. Yeah. Okay, it's not a horrible thing. It's called being human. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this affects your immune system, makes it less effective, okay, which allows a whole mess of bad boys, if you will, to take root. And that's what's causing your genetic predisposition to express. And then it's a cascade from there. and You get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. So the problem is you have to look at it from... The base forward, not from the end result backwards. Okay, you can't look at POTS, postural static tachycardia syndrome, as a standalone problem. Okay, you can't look at KPU, um, cryptopolyuria, as a standalone problem. Okay, the oxalates, everybody's got a high oxalate diet. You need all this inflammation to make those oxalates act like bad boys and create problems for your entire biochemical pathways. And that's why what we do works, because we think like that.
0: So are you saying that all those people that are doing the ice buckets for ALS are really doing it for Lyme?
2: <laughs> well, here's here's,
1: what, here's an interesting point that maybe people don't know about. But Lou Gehrig actually vacationed, had a holiday home in Lyme, Connecticut. Mm. And that's a proven fact. And they also did um, spirochetes, um, spirochetes. They found spirochetes in the cadavers of... ALS people, as well. So the correspondence is there, um, and cases. I've had a few ALS cases that actually turned out to be Lyme in disguise, um, because of the genetic component involved. It was kind of throwing doctors off, um, and they would say, "Oh, it's ALS. It's ALS." It's like, I don't think it's ALS. And then once we once they were treated for Lyme and going back through the foundational work. They got better, and these, this person literally flew around the world to get treated. And now they're about 50 or 60% better uh, in functioning. So
2: remember. The difficulty,
1: if, go ahead. Remember, what looks as one thing, you have to further evaluate because it's going to start off, as Jess said, a whole cascade of events.
2: The difficulty is we look at diagnoses. Okay, so ALS is a syndrome. MS is a syndrome. It's a collection of symptoms. You have to ask your ask the question, what can cause <clears throat> ALS? Okay, but we if if you say in your head, well, ALS is Lyme, but I treat the Lyme, but it really wasn't ALS. What you're saying is you're reinforcing in your head that ALS is this death sentence, which it's not. Something or a set of things cause amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or, or create multiple sclerosis. Okay. Something causes that. Okay. So we've been looking at it from the butt end, if you will, to excuse my expression, <laughs> I'm looking at the diagnosis, which is really a syndrome. Okay. And a diagnosis should be an estimate of what the problem is. So if you have a sore throat, That's a symptom if you have a strep throat. Now you know why you have a sore throat. If you have MS, ALS, or any of the other syndromes out there, CFS, fibromyalgia, they are symptoms. They are collections of symptoms. One has to keep asking why, okay? Uh, Sherlock Holmes had a great saying that, you know, it's a capital mistake to theorize without data because insensibly what you'll do is twist facts to suit theories instead of twisting theories to suit facts. What we do in today's medicine is have all these diagnoses and we shove people in them. Okay, then they have algorithms that you can follow. But what we're proposing and what we've been practicing is, okay, you have ALS. Okay, you have MS. That's not the death sentence you'd think it is. Let's start looking for why you have it. Where's that inflammation coming from? Why is it attacking the brain? Attacking the brain. It's probably a vector borne disease. Have you been checked for this? No, let's look. Okay. Uh, Fluoroquinolone toxicity, okay, the phloxies. Okay. It's not just fluoroquinolone antibiotics. We've seen people with other antibiotics have the same exact problems. We know the genetic base to look at and say, hmm, that raises our index of suspicion. Well, let's look here, here, and here. Okay. If you put it together, believe it or not, it's not that hard to get at the root cause. When you have the root cause, that's great. But you also have to remember that if you treat the root cause, the bugs, Lyme, whatever it is, you have to treat also what that root cause did to the body. That's how the whole foundational work. In an acute infection, like a strep throat, take some antibiotics. A week later, you feel fine, okay? But in a chronic problem, damage has occurred. Okay, not permanent damage, damage. Okay, dysfunction. So you want to get at what's you know, raging the fire and you want to fix what the fire did to the body. Okay. When you look at it both ways, when you do both things, that's called healing. Now we're doing one or the other. Somebody's picking one little thing in the middle and saying, oh, this is your panacea because people, doctors think in algorithms because that's the way they were taught. Okay. From the 1970s, I was there. I saw it happen. Okay. (laughs) I saw them go from being thinking machines to... Uh, let me follow an algorithm that a monkey could follow.
0: And a protocol set out by a board, et cetera, for treatment.
2: Mm-hmm. Remember that those are considered standards of care. And when something's considered a standard of care, breaching a standard of care means that you're you're committing malpractice. And they want to avoid that like the plague. Mm-hmm. So doctors are being forced not to think. It's not their
0: fault. Yeah. No, it's not. Okay.
2: It's- It really isn't. And the reason that alternative medicine people like us are laughed at is because we're thinking outside the box about how much of the stuff that we've been promulgating for years is now considered mainstream medicine. Lovesa, okay, fish oils, okay, Uh, Niaspan for cholesterol, which is just long acting niacin. Ten years ago, they would have laughed. Now it's a standard of care, okay? I wonder why, because it actually works. Okay, so I mean, this. We have to look at things from both ends, and that's um, when you're treating whatever, Lyme or whatever, you just have to have your high index of suspicion.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to give the listeners, this is a a list of symptoms of Lyme, uh, just so anyone can recognize in themselves, perhaps they have a number of these symptoms. Muscle pains, muscle cramps, stiffness, uh, stiff neck, loss of poor muscle tone, muscle weakness, unexplained shaking or trembling, Um, uh, pains that come and go shooting pains, any kind of pain irregular heartbeats, severe fatigue uh, vague discomfort uh, distractibility, difficulty concentrating confusion, brain fog forgetfulness, memory problems difficulty in speech or finding the right words, uh, sensitivity to light or sound possibility of outbursts, anxiety depression, moodiness, apathy, irritability anxiety attacks, compulsive behavior uh, any kind of psychiatric disorder Um, It mimics over 300 different diseases, low frustration tolerance, skin hypersensitivity, sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, uh, low libido, poor sleep, uh, too much sleep, too little sleep, fractionated sleep, uh, difficulty in multitasking, uh, unable to sit or lie down or need to sit or lie down, psoriasis, uh, nausea, loss of appetite. Liver function abnormalities, uh, swollen lymph glands, nodes, uh, spleen tenderness or swelling, and, um, I mean, just really lack of stamina, uh, tiredness. I mean, just uh, it's a very, very long list of potential symptoms.
2: Fact is, if you have any kind of chronic illness that, and you're still ill despite a reasonable amount of trials of different types of treatment and everybody's kind of knocking their head against the wall, rethink Lyme.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and can't uh, Lyme damage neurotransmitters so that this will in turn promote psych- psychiatric disorders or uh, depression and anxiety?
2: Just by its nature, it's going to cause neurotransmitter imbalances, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's why it's really good to do neurotransmitter testing, which is a urine test, um, because if all of the, your neurotransmitters are low, it's a sign that you have immune system dysfunction and potential infections like Lyme and the co-infections, correct? That is correct. Mm-hmm.
1: When your neurotransmitters go low, it's usually an indication it's been there for a chronic time. And normally when I see low neurotransmitters and I see confirmation of Lyme, I kind of go back through the history and try to retrace everything to say, okay, where is the potential exposure that this may happen? Um, one guy I had said, listen, man, you had this for 10 or 15 years. He goes, you know what? You made a point. I was a camper back in the day and stuff. I was always pulling ticks off me all the time. Whenever you see a low neurotransmitter pattern, um, it's usually a progressively long-standing case. Um, There are other cases to where um, you can see where it's active Lyme to when you see the neurotransmitters all on the high side. Um, Nine times out of ten, you can take a couple different lab um, results, piece them together, and you'll be able to quantify, hey, you know what, you have active Lyme. Like some of the LMDs and stuff send me their clients, their patients, and I look at their labs and stuff. I said, run a neurotransmitter test. Um, I said, listen, you need to go back to your LMD because your line's active again. And you can tell that just from the neurotransmitter pattern um, if the line is active or not. I mean, that one case, Jess, I just like walked in, popped in, said she got line, walked out the door. And then next thing you know, not only, did, not only did the mother, not only did the daughter have it, the mother also had it.
2: Mm-hmm. There's uh, immune patterns as immune patterns of decompensation. Mm-hmm. When we teach how to read neurotransmitter uh, tests, we teach it in a dynamic manner, so that people can see it in uh, in time order and consider it not just a you know a snapshot. Because we're talking about not only Lyme, but think about pandas, think about strap, think about any any immune. Uh, thing that upregulates the immune system you're going to see it and then you're going to see how the body uh, decompensates over time usually we get people with advanced decompensation or if we get it early we see it all smacked up and we you know, completely read everything that we know what we're dealing with Okay, so just remember it's something like ADD because I have a lot of kids come to me with ADD uh, a true ADD is, a, is low phenylethylamine, and low norepinephrine Okay, but your ADDs that are from hyperactivity disorder, okay, just means that their minds are moving so fast that they have the attention span of a gnat. Okay, same symptoms, okay, same syndrome, same syndrome, but you wouldn't want to treat the person with the upregulated neurological system with uh, amphetamines. They'll just blow the back of their head off. Yeah. Okay, whereas that's why the medicines work for some and not the others because they use the syndrome as the diagnosis, not the root causes okay or at least even the downstream effects if they can use band-aids okay and people laugh at neurotransmitter testing but guess what it isn't completely CNS it's CNS and, per- and peripheral nervous system but it gives you a pattern okay and it gives you a biomarker That guess what? Most other doctors are not using anything. In other words, they're guessing.
0: Oh yeah. At Mm -hmm. least
2: we're using biomarkers that say, okay, this is what's going on, and know what direction to go in.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me that psychiatrists uh, do no testing whatsoever and prescribe psychiatric medications uh, one after the other after the other with uh, zero indication of what's going on. It's amazing to me. No
2: testing. If they if they knew how to do this type of testing, if they accepted the testing, they could shorten that time which is essentially going from one thing to another. Depression is not always serotonin, so an SSRI isn't always indicated. It can be caused from all manner of difficulty. You could look at a neurotransmitter test, okay, and tell what you would prescribe for somebody if you're using it pharmaceutically. I had a kid who had, um, who had a, you know, a depression, and his neurotransmitter test, the psychiatrist didn't believe it, gave him Adderall, Welbutrin, Prozac, Okay, and he walked around like a zombie for a while, stopped, of course, taking it. Okay, the next year, he was going to go see the psychiatrist again. I wrote a letter to the psychiatrist, said, please, I know you don't believe in the test, but how about you use one thing at a time? The serotonin looks like it might be it. She gave him 10 milligrams of Prozac, half the adult dose, and in three days, he started feeling better and just stayed there. Yeah. Okay, now, granted, I'm not, I'm not a big harbinger of that, but it kind of proves the point. That's what his body needed. Okay, and he, you know, wasn't filled with anxiety and he wasn't depressed anymore. And, you know, I don't know what happened after that. But, um, you know, you can use these guides as indicators. You correlate them with everything and then you know what's going on. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes, and that's why, Wendy, you're on our list of practitioners because you will take the time and have the expertise. Yeah. Okay, to do exactly what it is we do.
1: One of the things I do want to bring light to here and stuff. Uh, when you are addressing Lyme, there are some cases to where they have to have neurolo- where they have to have um, medical intervention. Okay, there's no ifs ands buts about and it.
2: No question because, about it.
1: Um, when you're dealing with neurological Lyme, uh, there are some cases to where you can try every natural supplement on the face of earth. But it's the receptors that are the problem. And you may need a Lexapro or an SSRI. SS, you know, not so much SSNRI, but more an SSRI. They tend to go with or benzodiazepine just to try to um, get them a temporary relief. Um, and there's no harm or foul in using, uh, using medicine to increase problem quality of life. But you don't want to use it as a temporary Band-Aid. Okay? You want to use it and get to the root cause of the problem. Uh, I deal with a lot of neurological line uh, with the clients and stuff I get from the LMDs, and they're open-minded enough, and they um, they do treat based upon psychiatric evaluation. So they do have their ability to prescribe meds, but working in an integrative approach, um, they're going to, they notice a much better therapeutic outcome, less drugs, less everything. And a lot of the a lot of the doctors I work with are under the same mentality of, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do and to get the person stabilized. Once you get the person stabilized, then you wanna work on trying to come back around and, and try to get them off the drugs as quickly, as efficiently as possible. Um, especially with benzodiazepines, you gotta be incredibly careful with the benzo withdrawal is huge. Um, a lot of times it happens is is I had, a, I had a lady the other day, she was on it around the clock, and I told her, you know, integrate some um, integrate the precursor phenotropic along with it, but don't. She said, should I stop my medicine? No, you need to work with psychiatrists and stuff along with this process to see if they're on board and stuff. I'll be glad to help you um, change the oil filter in your meds and stuff. And I just let them le- – and give them a heads up saying, listen, if you feel X or Y, if you feel this – it's an indication that you're not overdosing on the supplement, you're actually making the med work more effectively. And your psychiatrist needs to understand this and to adjust accordingly.
2: Using a band-aid, there's no dishonor in using a band-aid if you're bleeding. Yeah. The dishonor occurs when all you do is use the band-aid and don't try and stop the bleeding. Yeah. Okay. When it concerns um, neuropsychiatric cases or any other kind of cases, the first criteria is the person safe? If they're not stay if they're not safe and we had a case this morning Uh, exactly like this, where the person simply wasn't safe. And I declined to treat them and directed them towards the appropriate resources because alternative medicine takes some time. You know, getting the body back to where it belongs takes some time. But if in that time that person is going to be unsafe, if they're going to be self-injurious, if they're going to be uh, dangerous to other people, they need to be under medical supervision. They need to be under, um, you know, probably intensive uh, either outpatient or inpatient psychiatric uh, treatment to keep them safe. You know, in a perfect world, holistic medicine is the best of allopathic and alternative medicine, okay? So we're heading there. We're getting there. Mm -hmm. We're the ones putting out the olive branches. Okay, and working with other doctors and and believe it or not, more allopathic physicians, medical physicians are coming to us and saying, Okay, what is it you're doing that's making my patients better? and you know, and they're they're coming on board and I like that. I like that it's going a little slower than I would like, but it is happening. It is starting to happen. But remember the use of medicines is not a, a bad thing. Okay, sometimes you need that and sometimes you need to know how to you know, wean, but you have to work with your medical professional. Uh, don't just stop medicines because you're going to take this amino acid. And if you're having significant symptoms, never do it on your own. You know, my, one of my other favorite sayings: the doctor who treats himself has got a fool for a patient, yeah. and that goes for <laughs> patients. Okay, and <laughs> yeah. never treat yourself. Okay, and where are you going to get your information from the internet, from TV programs, from. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. If you have significant symptoms, that's a bad way to go. Yeah.
0: People don't, it takes a long time to develop the vast body of knowledge that health practitioners have to get the full picture of what's going on. And I agree, intelligent allopathy is important because natural means, uh, supplementation, and natural protocols do take time, one, one, two, three years, and even longer, to correct the underlying imbalances in the body that are promoting illness. Um, So let's talk a little bit about uh, Lyme and how it's transmitted. Um, We know that it's transmitted by ticks, but can it be uh, transmitted by other insects as well?
1: Um, You're looking at mosquitoes, chiggers, flies, uh, spiders and humans ourself. Yeah. Um, those are what Jess refers to as vector diseases and any vector disease can be transmitted by those means. Um, so even if you, um, it's all about immune compromise, it's all about being immune compromised. Okay. They did a study over in, uh, Japan, I believe it was on H- HIV patients and they noticed that all HIV patients have, have Lyme because they're on an immune compromise. Okay. Um, it's the idea is, is how it's transmitted. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fluid to fluid contact. Okay. And you have to break the skin, um, kissing. I don't think it's transmitted kissing. Um, but, um, unless you're severely immune compromised, but it's more of a blood or fluid or sexual fluid transfer, uh, within, um, one person to the next one of the things i am seeing a lot more of is is i'm seeing when i look at the Lyme cases because i have a vast i have a vast um spectrum of them i would say probably about 75 to 85 percent of them are women Uh, and i think women are more vulnerable sexual transmission than guys are
0: yeah
1: um because of the some you know because of the um, emissions of the transfer um and women tend to be more creatures of stress than guys are. Um, they have a less distant genetics just in nature, uh, nature versus nurture, okay? They tend to, be, they tend to get stressed more easily. Mm-hmm. And that stress puts them at a higher risk of, um, re, higher risk of uh, their immune system being compromised. And whenever you have an immune compromise, you're going to have a higher increase of um, either letting the little monster out of its cage uh, which would be the Lyme, the analogy I use, or the idea of actually having direct uh, transfer and activation from an active Lyme bite.
0: Yeah, and can't uh, the, I think why Lyme is so tricky is because it can lie dormant and then it comes out and rears its ugly head during times of stress and then it can go back dormant again and then come back out. So people just, in- people just thinking, oh, I have the flu or oh, I have some sort of illness when really they have a chronic illness.
1: Lime goes into what's called a cis form. The cis form is the dormant form. Um, and a lot of times people think by giving certain antibiotics that they're doing them good. Um, but little do they know when you look at the studies, if you give doxycycline without Tindamax, you're actually – yeah, you are killing the Lyme. But you're also increasing the amount of round bodies in the process, which is not a good thing Okay, because you're creating more dormant Lyme than active Lyme. So that's why practitioners – or that's why LMDs are great at what they do. Um and a lot of the LMDs I work with are completely research based. Because as we know, the LMD, you know, a lot of doctors, practitioners who are treating Lyme, they're on the radar all the time.
0: So LMDs
1: are Lyme doctors, correct? LMDs are Lyme literate medical doctors, correct. There's also Lyme literate NDs as well, too, um, that are capable of, of treating Lyme either medicinally or um naturally. Um I'm starting to explore this avenue. I'm just not comfortable with it yet on how to exactly address the Lyme. So I tend to approach it from addressing the person rather than addressing the Lyme itself. Because clinically, Dr. Jess, even though he's a DC, cannot diagnose Lyme. But we can address the person. No, no, no.
2: I can diagnose Lyme. I'm not allowed to treat an infectious disease. I can diagnose anything I want. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. But you just can't treat the actual. I can't treat an infectious disease, the actual Lyme disease, the actual right? Lyme.
0: Yeah. So you work in conjunction with doctors, et cetera. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, the conventional treatment for Lyme is antibiotics. Uh, any doctor you go to is just automatically going to give you antibiotics. Um, but there's there's other ways. Um, how do you naturally eradicate Lyme with supplements and natural antibiotics?
1: The way that I approach Lyme, as mentioned before, is is sometimes we get lucky and we get the body to take care of itself. Take we work on the immune system, we do the foundational work, and in some cases, we get the person to a certain s- standard to where ninety percent of their ninety supp- percent of their symptoms are reserved resolved. So I said, and I let them know. I said, listen, you know what you're dealing with, and if you still fo- if you start to fall backwards and stuff, you know what your next step is. That way, they don't have no rhyme or reason to wonder what's going on with them 10 or 15 years down the road, if anything happens. Because you let them know. If this gets worse, within the next six months to a year, you need to seek medical attention or actually start addressing the Lyme itself. Um, And by doing the foundational work, we we bolster up the immune system. And the way I explain this is very simple, okay? What you want to do is this Lyme's is like a wild animal that's got out of its cage. Okay, it's the job of the LMD to identify the line and to put it back into its cage. A lot of times, when it's put back into its cage, what's happening is is they don't ever address the lock, which was the problem that got out in the first place. So, what Dr. Jess and I do is is we reinforce that lock to keep it in its place, um, because there are some people out there who believe they can kill it. Okay, but the question is is that still remains to be seen, because um, I think it'd be hard time proving it okay but what we found by is is by increasing the resistance to stress through natural approaches through foundational work we find that people who are currently in Lyme treatment tend to respond a lot quicker and even the best scenario is, is which i'm trying to work with a couple of doctors is is have them send their patients to dr Jess myself or practitioners like you Wendy, who have demonstrated incredible skills um, in um, very rapid, very rapidly uh, improving to where we could work with them for anywhere between two to three months and prep their body for war. Okay. Too many doctors are, too many people are going into Lyme, not having proper um, arsenal against themselves through the treatment. And, and that's just
0: taking supplements and nourishing the body so that it has the weapons and minerals and has everything that it needs to function. Min- it's
1: all about minerals, having the enzymes to function. It's also a mindset, too. Uh, a lot of times, mind can have a huge impact on the immune system. And working in conjunction with other practitioners, we are starting to see that in regards to food sensitivities. That by changing how you, by changing how you approach the problem in a mindset is actually allowing the body to heal. Um, it's referred to as site K. Um, or retraining the limbic system. That's a whole nother showing among itself. But start with the groundwork. Start with the foundational work, and try to prevent that lock. Try to prevent that lock from rusting, and to keep it in check. Even though you identify it, as long as you work from a natural standpoint and from a systematic standpoint your chances of going down the antibiotic route will actually be lessened. Or if you do go down the antibiotic route, your chances of having quote herxing, which is just a basic term that I found. And the number one thing is, is why don't my clients herx as bad? Because what's happening is, is I'm increasing their body's resistance to stress. That's what's herxing is. Okay. It's stress. If you do not, if a person is in a stressed environment to begin with, you're adding more stress on top of them. If you resolve the stress they're currently dealing with, it gives their body a, a better ability to fight what's to come. And that's why my clients and also the LMDs I'm working with are seeing a huge dramatic change in their patients uh, as well as I'm sure Dr. Jess's um, L, you know, relationships with uh, doctors as well, seeing the same thing this integrative approach is, is going to be the final answer um, in dealing with the fight for Lyme. Because um, if you treat with the antibiotics, you're treating the disease, you're not treating the person. And then they relapse. The reason they relapse, they don't have the their body's ability to tolerate stress. And then all of a sudden, you get gene expression, you get other factors going on, and the whole cascade starts.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. What people should be careful of is they think by... Using the herbal approaches to fighting Lyme, okay. There's different herbal protocols and herbal substances. That's the same as using antibiotics. Mm-hmm. That does not take the place of doing the foundational work or what uh, some people will call biological terrain work. Okay. In other words, fixing the body itself. Whether you, and the same thing in chemotherapy. Whether you're using chemotherapeutic agents against cancer, or you're using herbal agents against cancer. Okay, you're still treating the the example I like to give is if you have a lake that's you know exposed to the sun and it it's, doesn't have a lot of um, water flow and it doesn't get oxygenated, it starts getting very acidic, and that lake's going to produce a lot of mosquitoes. The mosquitoes are things like Lyme cancer and so forth. And you can use nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals to kill the mosquitoes, but you're still going to have a lot of them unless you fix that lake. Unless you improve the circulation of the lake, oxygenate the lake, throw some fish in there, give it some uh, shade. Okay, once that lake becomes healthy, it won't produce as much mosquitoes. And then what you're using will begin to work, whether it's a pharmaceutical or nutraceutical. Okay, so what the middle ground is not to use herbal anti lime agents because they're going to do the same thing as the antibiotics. They're not going to give you any better of a result because you're not, still not fixing the base physiology of the body.
0: I love that point uh, because I think physicians and other healthcare care practitioners are doing their patients such a disservice When they treat cancer or other diseases and do not strengthen that person's body with minerals and nutrients that are required for the body to work and to have a healthy immune system so that they don't get sick again. And that's why we see the recurrence of cancer in people that have been treated and high recurrence rates of Lyme and other illnesses because of this very essential missing component in the treatment protocol. So I love that point, Dr. Jess. Thank you. Thank you. And, and it should
2: be very basic, but it doesn't seem to be for self. No,
0: no, it's very elementary to us, but not mm-hmm. to to so many other healthcare practitioners. Um, and so what are some of the, the natural, uh, you know, herbals and perhaps colloidal silver and things that you use to eradicate Lyme? Uh,
1: some of the things we use is is we use colloidal silver in some people. Um, we've also, there's also MMS out there now, but the new thing is, is is it's a whore. ASEA water, A-S-E-A water, mm-hmm. which works mm. very good. Oh, yeah. basically a diluted form of, of the uh, CDS. Um, a lot of people are getting good results with. Um, there's different protocols that are being used. And some of them you have to be very, very careful with, especially with Uh, when a gato. uh Anybody that has high dopamine levels or experiencing anxiety or any kind of uh, imbalance neurologically, um, that basically the gas pedal is down and the braking system's broke you want to be extremely careful with uh gato cuz it's a Mayo B inhibitor which basically means that if you can't break the dopamine down because of your gene expression or that you just don't have enough braking system in place um, several cases i have worked on i've seen high dopamine levels and when i look back through they were doing a lot they were doing a lot of cats uh, uh which is catscola which is one of the main components. So your practitioner should have a good interaction of the herbs, know their pharmaceutical interventions and their pharmaceutical actions because the majority of the drugs that are produced are based upon botanicals uh, and herbs themselves. So just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's safe. And that's what, one of the things that we have to look at. Um, there's so many people out there, even taking minerals and stuff, as you know. Minerals have to be balanced and they have to be balanced very technically. Okay. Too much of this knocks out that. So you've got to be diligent on those. So you start with the good foundational work and the nutrition. And then, um, I mean, there's, there's the Calvin protocol. There's, um, there's uh, the a unit protocol. Um, Steven bunner has got a great book out. Um, uh, it's one of the best books that I've, had a chance to glimpse at but I think it tends to be more suitable stance than other protocols um, because there's science based upon it um, and it's one of the avenues that I'm looking to get into in the very near future because I think it holds a lot of promise uh, with the interjection of what Dr. Jess and I are doing um, and then um, natural wise you've got um, um, like colloidal silver Colloidal silver is very good, um, it does kill lime, um, but it also um, boosts your immune system too. Mm. And it's also a great immune system booster. Um, the only problem with colloidal silver is it doesn't kill parasites. Mm. So you have to use an anti-parasitic along with it to sweep up those.
0: How um, long can you take colloidal silver? Is there a max on that? Colloidal
1: silver... Depends, depends um, on the type. Yeah, it depends on the type. Um, there has to be a there has to be a, a differentiation. There has to be a separation between colloidal silver and colloidal, um home What homebrewed stuff is okay? The, yeah, you the don't want to do silver,
2: that. <laughs>
1: no, there's actually people that actually are Definitely making their own colloidal that. silver, and you're going to end up turning into Papa Smurf.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. You don't want to do your own colloidal silver. You, you don't just want to don't. do colloidal silver even though they are, even though they actually have formulas out there and they actually have a maker out there as well. You don't
2: want to do it. There's certain things you simply don't want to do. Okay, you want to get the colloidal silver that's got the smallest molecule, the one that's packaged in glass, not plastic, you know, uh, brown glass so that uh, the f- light photons don't uh, start messing with it. Fact is, if your colloidal silver is turning a silver color, <laughs> you're not getting it. Okay, um, other things like go ahead, biocidens, artemisian, yeah. you know, um, uh, getting more esoteric, rife, the rife machines.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. I've, I've done uh, one of those, they're interesting. That they're, they're light, they, light pulses, very, very interesting.
2: Yeah,
1: um, zappers and rife machines, I was very skeptical of, but once I started having people do it, the results have been literally amazing. Uh, two, three weeks, they're noticing their symptoms, they don't have a much. Herxing, so, to speak, the
0: detox symptoms.
1: Them. The detox symptoms um, through stress in the system. Um, and even one person um, who tried everything under the face of the earth uh, was able to tolerate them. So, um, I think they're a, a good way to go. I think they're very, relatively, very safe as long as they're used uh, under proper supervision.
2: You have to realize that when you pick out your healthcare practitioners, you have to pick out somebody who's got a very large toolbox. Okay, there's there's an old saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Okay, so if you have a really large toolbox and all a lot of knowledge about various ways of treating, not everybody responds to everything, but you'll have alternatives. If you only know one thing, if you if you go to somebody who practices a protocol, that that's all you're going to get. Okay, that you may not get what you actually need. You're gonna get the protocol, which I think is rather silly. Okay, you need to go to you need to go to do we really need specialists? No, we really need generalists. We need people who have a broad base of knowledge. Okay, and can bring that all in. Okay, Sean and I have large toolboxes. So when we have somebody doesn't respond, we have lots of opportunities and lots of things that we can go to you know, based on our experience, based on our, you know, who we know and who we can send them to and what. But again, if you go to somebody who just does a protocol or does one thing, okay, you're with the wrong practitioner, okay, because your body may not respond to what they have, okay? Some people do, okay, and that's wonderful. But you should go to a practitioner that has a very large toolbox,
0: yeah. And so can you, you mentioned earlier that, uh, Sean, that you may not believe that you can eradicate Lyme. Um, are there people that you've seen that have uh, completely reversed it or is it just a chronic illness that you constantly have to keep in check and treat occasionally when it pops out due to stress?
1: Um, in that situation, I agree with the third one is, this? it's, you always have to keep them back of your mind. Um, because working with LMDs and stuff, we do see relapses. Um, and that's just something you just can't prevent, you know? Um, you get a cold, you get sick, um, grandmom dies, okay? That's when it tends to pop its ugly head again. So, But the thing is, is at least you know what you're dealing with. Um, that's the peace of mind. Because a lot of the clients and patients that I see from doctors, the best thing they know is... is is leaving with peace of mind, knowing what they're dealing with, so they're not chasing their tails all over the internet trying to find out what's going on the next time it arises. At least you can address it when it comes up. Um, many times people come back to me, um, Sean. You know, I'm having this symptom, this symptom. I'm like, okay, what did you do? I dropped my ox. I'm I cut my ox down by fifty percent. Too much. I got a dump. I said, well. Since you're dealing with infections and stuff, you may have also woken the sleeping giant again, okay? So as long as you have a a game plan, as long as you have a clinical diagnosis from a doctor, then it's going to leave you with a peace of mind. Um, One of the cases I worked on, um, uh, 20 years, she was chasing her tail not knowing what's going on. And I knew it was Lyme, but it wasn't until the final diagnosis came in that it truly wasn't Lyme. It was it was a co-infection she was dealing with. Uh, chlamydia pneumonia. She had it for 15, 20 years. Um, but the thing was, is the treatment was the same things for Lyme. And now she's doing much, much better. But the thing is, is she has a peace of mind after all these years that it's not all in her head.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what we want to emphasize.
2: Yeah, I, w- I want to... Um Somewhat disagree with Sean in in just a couple of points. Number one, I do think you can get rid of uh, the microorganisms and kill them all. Um, But you can get reinfected. Uh, Number two, uh, I think that when whatever the bug does to the body, if that's not treated, okay, there are things called facilitated pathways. So uh, let's say you have all this damage and all this cascade effect. Something else can stimulate the body, and you're going to get the same symptomatology, and it's going to look like you have Lyme, but it's being caused by a different uh, problem. Uh, you see this with migraines all the time. Migraines you cannot cure a migraine. Okay, you can treat a migraine, but if you want to cure a migraine, you want to you want to control all the triggers. The less, if you control the triggers, the less migraines you have, the less tendency you're going to have. But you still can get you know, a certain amount of stressors that will set off the same exact migraine you've had, because that's the facilitated pathway. It'll follow the same cascade and give you the same set of symptoms. So there is a possibility that what you're dealing with is a lack of improving or fixing the body rather than a chronic uh, exacerbation of Lyme. It's just another probability. Mm -hmm okay yeah that's a good
1: that's a good point jess um and that's why when anything like that arises i always go back and i look at their i always want to go back and look at the quantitative evidence to mm-hmm. say hey uh, have you had an mdl lab retested on it have you looked at the neurotransmitter pathways um that way it just reinforces do you see a drop in dhea so you look at patterns um diagnostically to see if the probability of it is there. Um, but it's always proper evaluation. It's always proper history. Mm-hmm. Most people, if you're stuff, it's always reinfection.
2: Right. You, you just realize if you, if you treat somebody just the way we do, if we're treating the whole biological train, then my entire argument goes out the window because that's not going to be what the problem is. The problem is going to be reinfection or an exacerbation of an existing infection. If a, for most people who haven't had the biological train treated, that may be one of the reasons why even small things are setting off Lyme-like symptoms. Okay, so the, the takeaway was treat, and, and you've already, you know, I know you already know this, but treat the biological train, treat foundationally, and you're going to get rid of 90% of the ills that you're being faced with. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you guys do testing for Lyme. I do testing for Lyme. Uh, We like MDL Labs, are one of the best labs in the country for viruses and other microorganisms. That's all they do. They specialize in that. Um, So, what are some of the best tests to do for Lyme, including the co-infections?
1: MDL's got a really. um, We actually have a customized uh, panel that we use. Uh, Works very well. Um, It's very very affordable. Another mechanism is is Igenix has an incredible test, um, the, the antibiotic challenge um, to actually force the Lyme out, um, and they have a urine test which is very very good um, to chuck for uh, the further Bartonella. You got Galaxy Labs which is also very good. So there are other labs special. There are other specialty labs when you need to go further. But just general the generalization on MDL labs, like I said, we've picked up. 10, 12 people in the past few weeks that slipped through uh, by looking at the details of the bands and stuff. Mm-hmm. And even though that you do get a fact copy, you really don't see the reality until you look at it on the blown-up computer screen. Yeah. That's when the reality comes, when you see the PDF file.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
2: In answer to your question, we're looking at uh, Babesia, uh, Bartonella, Rocky Menace, Spotify, and... HME, uh, all the uh, Borrelia bug and we're getting a Western blot, plus we're looking at toxoplasmosis, candida, parvovirus, that's within our vector-borne panel. Okay, so we're getting a really good view of Lyme and the co-infections, and we're able to visual visually inspect the Western blot. And, and Sean will tell you that we just went over a test where the computer saw several bands, but didn't report it on top, and the accumulation of the IgG-IgM was in the positive range, okay, but unless you read the Western blot itself, okay, you wouldn't get the impression this person had Lyme, and they had Lyme, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's kind of easy to point it out, and yeah, there are other labs you can use for confirmatory, uh, but they tend to get expensive, and again, it's a matter of who's interpreting it.
0: Yeah, you need a human to interpret computerized tests. You always have to have a human.
2: Absolutely. And, And your history and index of suspicion has to be high. Yeah. And that's how it's done. You have to couple the testing with a good, unbiased, expert interpretation. Yeah.
0: And so so many people say they test negative for Lyme, negative Western blot, negative IgG, IgM, but they have all these co-infections. Is that where you suspect the dormant Lyme and that they do possibly, in fact, have Lyme?
2: As I said, as I indicated before, that if we consider Lyme all these things together, okay, because that's kind of the way the public thinks about it. If we look at the Lyme and the co-infections and everything else as Lyme, okay, it, that's what I'm saying. When we should check everything out. If you're looking for the actual Lyme organism, Borrelia burgdorferi, well, you know then you're talking about one microorganism, okay. But in the vector-borne diseases, which is what you're really talking about, what most people consider Lyme is all these things together and have to be all checked. So, if the problem with testing is that they may test just for Borrelia burgdorferi. Instead of testing for Brucella melitensis and um, the WA1 and the various other um, the various other co-infections, which is what should be standard, I don't understand why it's not. It should be standard for us to look for people to look at it. But what they do is they do one test for one microorganism, and it's a very limited test, and it's only valid at a very small period of time. So, you know, they say it's all negative and. You also have to realize some of the politics involved. Okay, in Australia, the diagnosis of Lyme does not exist.
0: Mm.
2: That they're not saying that they're saying that Lyme doesn't exist. Uh, I don't know that the that the ticks overshot Australia. Okay, <laughs> here in the United States, the infectious disease guys say that chronic Lyme doesn't exist. And I remember arguing with one guy and having him up against the wall like Darth Vader, saying, "Are you trying to tell me that Borrelia burgdorferi is the only microorganism on the planet?" That can only give you an acute condition, but not a chronic condition. Okay, so what does it have a suicide gene? Okay, and in most of the countries that have nationalized healthcare, they'll get positive tests from IGenex, do their own tests, and they'll always come out negative. So you have to wonder about the politics involved and who's paying for it, and do they really do they really are are they setting things up so they don't have to pay for the treatment?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, why has the incidence of Lyme increased so much? Because uh, you're saying there was, you know, much less Lyme before, but now we're seeing this explosion of Lyme. Why is that?
2: Part of it is better diagnosis. Part of it is, uh, you know, worldwide travel, okay? Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're no longer just, you know, going over the mountains on donkey, donkeys anymore. We have worldwide travel so things can spread, okay? Uh, the awareness is up, Um and I'm not sure, Sean. Do you think that Lyme is just becoming more diversified? And what I think know.
1: is happening is, is I think a lot of people are carriers of it. They don't know it, and because of the gene expressions and the change in the environment, and just um, you know, our inability to tolerate stress, electromagnetic fields. Electromagnetic fields is one of the biggest ones. Because low-frequency electromagnetic fields have been shown to increase viral replication uh, significantly, I had several cases of people who had Lyme, and when I changed their, when I went in and looked at their electromagnetic sensitivity, worked on the adrenal glands as well as um, addressed um, the EMF protection at night, uh, with no change in supplementation, with no change in meds or anything, their load, their Lyme load count dropped. Back into the normal range. So, our
2: society is getting sicker. Okay. Our society is getting sicker. You know, when I was a kid on Sunday, only two things were open the church and the bakery. Okay. (laughs) Right. And then the TV was shut off at midnight. It wasn't just shut off, the, you know, they just stopped broadcasting. Okay. Now we live in a 24 7. Mm-hmm. Highly stimulatory society, which I like to call excitotoxic. We're not adapted to it. Okay. We're not adapted to this fight or flight, you know, that happens, the fight or flight syndrome. We're adapted once every six weeks, not four or five, six times a day, like you listen to your, you know, uh, news radio station. Okay. We're not adapted to all the stressors. And I think that our immune systems are showing it. And that's what's opening us up for so many things. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get into the glyphosates and the GMO foods and that, you know, that's hurting, you know, people initially with their guts. We're not going to get into immunizations that they're starting at babies who don't even have organized immune systems and they're giving them three injections before they leave the hospital. Okay, so by the time the MMR hits, they've had, you know, 15 to 21 immunizations, where when I was a child, maybe you had three. By that time, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it's probably a little bit more than that, okay? Uh, when I went into the army, they, I walked down the line and they gave me injections in each arm, okay? But my body could handle it at that time, yeah. not as an infant, no. okay? So we're living in a, in a excitotoxic society and a toxic society, and our bodies simply have not had the time to adapt to it. So we have to do things up front. We have to be proactive, in treating this, otherwise, people were going to get I'm noticing, and as Sean's noticing, and I'm sure you are, people are getting sick earlier.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: I'm looking at neurotransmitter patterns of mm-hmm. complete exhaustion in 11-year-olds. Okay. I used to see that in 65-year-olds. What's happening? The society is getting more ill. So that makes us susceptible to everything.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay. And I think that's the base of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and also uh, selenium deficiency will, uh, you know, selenium prevents viral replication. So if you have a mm-hmm. selenium deficiency, that will also promote the uh, proliferation of viruses and other microorganisms as well.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Just a little mineral tip. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely! That's great. That's wonderful.
2: There's so many. There's so many avenues of healing the body. That's why doing it together, doing it holistically is the best way to go. It's taking all of our expertise is what I mentioned in my podcast last night. What does it take to do what we do? It takes research. It takes study, but it takes collaboration. Okay. It, It takes us not holding our knowledge like a dog with a bone. Okay. It takes collaboration. You have your expertise Sean has his expertise. I have my expertise. Ours. We share it amongst one another. Okay. And that's, Better for the greater whole. A candle doesn't lose any light by lighting another candle. Okay? It collaboration is a thing. If we're gonna heal the planet, if we're gonna change the face of healthcare on the planet, we have to collaborate.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that Jess or Sean that you would like to add uh to our conversation about Lyme?
1: Just that, you know, as you mentioned before, that if you're having these unknown illnesses and you haven't been, um, and you were just wondering around, because um, I see it on the forums all the time. I'm like, line, line, line. And you can pick it, you can pretty much pinpoint it out because of the fact of the symptoms. And also, I even go in and to look at what city they're at. <laughs> and then you are you can do it demographically. So it's usually just, um, you know, and there are different ways. There, there is a technique that I've used, um, which will be a whole other story, on diag- d- diagnostic evaluations of Lyme. You don't look for Lyme directly. You look for the footprints it leaves, okay? By looking at the neurotransmitter pattern, by looking at the cortisol patterns, by looking at the DHGA levels, by looking at the ECP, the vascular the growth factor, um, vas- um, vitamin D125 or 25 ratio is the biggest indicator that I find. That is the major driving force to say, listen, pathogen or environmental exposure. And then you have to start playing detective or Sherlock Holmes and try to find which one it is, you know, because Lyme and mycotoxins are very, very closely related and they mimic each other very, very closely. So you have to look, you know, and people, people will tell you, yeah, I had a I had a mold in the house the other year. You know they will know it. So, looking at the history, not just the diagnostic tools, is really going to be the overall determining factor of whether the person potentially has Lyme or not. And a lot of times and stuff, I will um, not chase a rabbit down the hole, but put it on the back burner because if everything else I'm doing isn't working, then that's one of the that's one of the avenues that I will further explore.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, this is such an engaging uh, engaging conversation, and I know it's going to be so educational for any of you guys out there that are, have been suffering for a really long time. You need to look at Lyme, and so I hope we got that point across today. So why don't you guys tell the listeners uh, where they can find you and perhaps get testing with you for Lyme?
2: Oh, sorry. Um, go ahead, Jess. Go ahead. <clears throat> Basically, uh, we're at... Uh, www.methylationsupport.com We can be reached at bioindividualmed at gmail.com by email Uh, or telephone number 610-449-9716 You can get an appointment with either Sean or I uh, through any of those methods and we do have uh, Lyme testing and a, um, a special interpretive session where you can get your testing done have an appointment with one of us to just do interpretation, not uh, be pushed into any other kind of treatment, and that if you uh, look like you have Lyme, uh, we would refer you to the, or inform you of the proper treatment resources. Mm-hmm. But I think what's needed and necessary these days is proper testing and proper unbiased expert interpretation, and then someone to say, okay, these are your options. Okay, without that feeling of, oh, this person's trying to sell me and trying to get me into their particular um, set of treatment. Uh, that's not what we do in this kind of case as we diagnose it and then say, okay, here are your treatment options and this is what you can take to the bank. Okay. And that's the most important thing.
0: And you have a, do you have a location where people can go as well?
2: Yeah, we're in uh, Upper Darby in, um, in Pennsylvania, which is uh, right outside of Philadelphia. Uh, we're in a location where I usually take an extra 10% off if you can find us. And <laughs> hopefully, we'll be getting a. We're, we're uh, joining forces with another doctor pretty soon uh, for a different office. But uh, yeah, we have a nice office, and um, we're at uh, eighty four twenty Westchester Pike in um, Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Uh, and like I said, right outside the western portion of Philadelphia.
0: So I take it you're not cracking backs anymore.
2: <laughs> oh, I do. I do. You're still at, I just backs. Don't, I I haven't given up my practice. Uh, yeah. my, I don't have the volume I used to. I just yeah. take care of my old patients. Um, there's a chiropractor downstairs that if new patients come in or somebody needs a lot of care, I'll send them down to him. Only because I simply don't have the time. Yeah. Okay, and this is my passion. This um, is more
0: fun. This is much more fun, probably. Yeah.
2: I, lo- I love chiropractic. I really do. It's just that this is much more fun. Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and you have a podcast as well, correct?
2: Every Monday night.
0: Okay. Yeah, you have, a, you have an excellent podcast. It's one of my favorites and things should be much, much more popular. It's on Blog Talk Radio, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah, I think you just go on blogtalkradio.com, search for Jess Armine, and you will find him.
2: I'll be there. Big old grin on my face.
0: Yes. And Sean, uh tell us about you.
1: Um, I'm at the same office Jess is at. Um you can contact me through the information that he provided, just notify that you'd like to set up an appointment with myself or him. Um and we're there to collaborate together. I mean, if the case gets – we keep we try to keep everything in-house because that way, um, between the both of us, I don't think there's really anything that we can't conquer um, or actually have – have ran up against, we have run up against walls and stuff. And we have a network of hundreds of practitioners, specialists in every field that we have access to. And the best way I explain this is – it's not just a one-man show, okay? It's a team effort, not only on the part of the medical professionals, but also them in collaboration of the patient and themselves.
0: Yeah, I yeah. think that's so important because I feel the same way. I put together an elite team of, uh, mm-hmm. of consultants, including yourself, because no one practitioner has all the answers, and you need help from multiple disciplines to be able to you know, crack the code, so to speak, to figure out what exactly is wrong with the client. Exactly the true. Yeah.
2: And that's what they're looking for, unfortunately these days the the onus on treating and advocating is on the patient themselves, yeah. and that that we have to take back because that's our responsibility and give them the best service and And collaborating and not having an ego is um, the only way to go about this
0: yeah well, guys, thank you so much uh, for such a fantastic podcast appreciate so much appreciate you taking the time to do this and educate people and my listeners. On the topic of Lyme. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank and you. Yes. Yeah. So, listeners, if you want to learn more about me, you can go to live to 110com You can learn about my healing and detox program, mineralpower.com, where we do that foundational work, mineralizing your body and detoxing it from heavy metals and chemicals. And you can also learn about my online health program, bodybiorehab.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.